Hello and welcome to episode 5 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Firstly, I'd like to thank everyone for their support of the first four episodes. I've been listening to feedback and just want to let you know of a few changes resulting from this. Within the Boggart Wood started last Halloween with written articles rather than a podcast, but I've now decided that the story section of the project will become purely audio, so I'll be converting the stories already on the site to podcast entries over the coming weeks. The investigating section, however, will remain as text articles, simply as there are too many photos and other references in them to translate well into audio at this stage. For those who aren't aware, there are three articles currently in the investigating section, each detailing elements of photography and paranormal research. One detailing orbs, one mists, and one long exposure. Listeners have also suggested that a merch store is required. As such, I'm in the process of testing out a spring store, I'll post links on the website and social media when this is ready. I also want to give a quick update on the Patreon page. As I'm sure you're aware, I haven't done much with this element yet. There are, however, currently two tiers of membership. If you want to just help support the project but don't want it to bite your pocket financially, I've set up a basic membership of £1 a month which gains you a shout-out on the podcast during the episode closest to the day you sign up. If, however, you wish to help a little more, There's another tier at £3 a month, which is called the My Torch is Bigger Than Yours tier, which gets you the shout-out and access to a digital download of my book Supernatural Northeast, Folklore, Myths, Legends and Ghosts, which was originally published back in 2009, which is also now currently not available in print form. As well as this, the higher tier will get access to exclusive Zoom meetings, and I'll be uploading videos from the Otherworld Northeast Investigation Archives. Otherworld Northeast was a paranormal investigation group that I founded back in 2003, which closed its doors last year. I'm hoping to start uploading the videos in a fairly regular basis once I've decided on format. As well as this, all Patreon supporters will also have their name written in the acknowledgements of the Within the Boggart Wood range of books and investigation guides, which I'm in the process of planning. More on those in the future. So, on to the first of today's stories. The village of Lanchester lies in County Durham, located three miles southeast of Consett and six miles northwest of Durham City. As the village's name suggests, the village has Roman origins and is sited on Deer Street, which was the main Roman road between York and up into Scotland. In fact, the village's Roman fort, Longavicium, lies unexcavated on the southwest side of the village, protected in law as a scheduled ancient monument. Naturally, a village with such a rich and long history has gathered its tales of ghosts. Just east of the village lies Herworth Lodge, which was built on the site of the medieval farmstead of Manor House Farm. During excavations for the building of the lodge in the late 1960s, sections of a Roman road were allegedly seen, a road which was thought to link Lanchester to Chester Street. Prior to this, in 1909 at Warriors Bridge, which is now the southeastern side entrance to the village, William Greenwell found fragments of 3rd to 4th century Roman grave markers and since then there have been a number of tales of the bridge and the peth burned beneath it being haunted by the shade of a Roman soldier. Over recent years, the Lanchester Community Centre has also become a favourite venue for ghost hunting groups. The Community Centre was originally the old school, the core of which was built in 1875 as the village's endowed parochial school. It was extended further in 1937 and closed in 1963. Prior to the school being built, the site housed a mill house and garden owned by a Mr. John Toward. Historically, I can't find any records of ghost stories associated with the building, but ghost hunting groups have seemingly identified it as the haunt of a white lady, 
with unexplained banging noises being heard, as well as low-key poltergeist activity being noted, such as investigators being scratched and poked. According to one investigation on the site, the white lady is said to be the spirit of a former headmistress called Cecily Ritson, who was sacked for beating children and now haunts her former school. Interestingly, Cecily Ritson does not appear in any element of the historic record that I can find, though the school logbooks are held at Durham Archives, which are closed due to relocation until at least autumn of this year. So once the school records are available, I'll be able to check to see if Miss Ritson existed in life, or is just an artefact of someone's imagination. In the early 1970s, a house on Alderdine was reputedly haunted by what was described as a tall, dark, evil figure. The Dent family appeared to be the focus of the activity, and fled the house twice before finally moving out in 1971. The activity was bad enough that the Dents called in two separate vicars to bless the house, and when the blessings failed, called in a group of spiritualists. One of the vicars was the Reverend Charles Lavelle of Esch, who was reported to have tried to get rid of a black mystery figure, which a number of people have reported seeing at a house in Alderdean in Lanchester. On the 5th of February 1971, the Newcastle Journal reported, a spiritualist assurance has stopped a Lanchester family asking the rural council to rehome them. Mr. and Mrs. Fred Dent and their six children moved out of the house in Alderdean after being plagued by evil spirits. They stayed with relatives for a week and only returned after a group of spiritualists held a seance and said there would be no further trouble. Mrs. Margaret Dent said yesterday, We only moved back into our own rooms last night. I had written a letter to the council asking to be rehoused, but one of the spiritualists came back on the day I was going to make, take it to the council. She said she thought we were making a mistake, so now we will stay and see what happens. However, two months later, the Wilson family took on the property, suggesting that the spiritualists didn't quite manage in their task. In an article dated the 4th of April 1971 in the Sunday Sun, the Wilson family stated that they didn't believe in ghosts, so the activity reported in their new home didn't bother them. They were just glad of more space to live in against their old council house. On the 5th of April, the Newcastle Journal followed up on the Wilsons' first night in their home, who reported a quiet night. Mrs Dent's response to this was, I am glad they have had a quiet night, but I know the ghost will return soon. We are settling into our new house now, and I am just glad we are out of that place after what we have been through. Twenty-three days later, the local papers reported that the Wilsons had applied to the council to be rehoused. But in an article in the journal, the Wilsons denied everything, saying they were very happy in their new home, and there had been no ghostly activity in the property since they moved in. The second story for today details the Headley Cow. The Headley Cow, spelt with a K, was a popular 19th century folk tale which told of the exploits of a shape-shifting bogey that made a nuisance of itself around the Headley area. One of the oddities here though is that it can't be agreed on which Headley area, whether it was Headley in Northumberland near Corbridge or the Headley near Kibblesworth in County Durham. For interest, on the main website I've put extracts of the 19th century maps. Mischievous rather than malevolent, the cow was said to have gained its name by the creature's common habit of shape-shifting into a cow and leading the local milkmaids a merry dance, his antics always being announced with a jeering laugh. Interestingly though, the Denham tracts, collected between 1846 and 1859, refer to the cow as simply a Northumbrian ghost story, tentatively suggesting the tale's development. Tales of the cow were collected by Henderson in his Notes on the Folklore of the Northern Counties of England and the Borders, published in 1879, 
with an article in the Newcastle Chronicle of 1888 suggesting that the events around the cow were thought to have taken place during the early 1800s. However, William Brockie's Legends and Superstitions of the County of Durham, published in 1886, states during the last century, suggesting the 1700s. A Newcastle Chronicle article dated 6th of October 1888 gives a good summary of the story. The whole surface of the terraqueous globe, so far as it has been inhabited and explored by man, is supposed to have been infested more or less in former times, if not still, by supernatural beings of some sort or other. Some of these sprites have been held to be beneficent, others malignant, others again only mischievous or tricksy. Some seem to have been thought ubiquitous, if not omnipresent, or at least able to appear or capable of being called up at any time or place, while others are local goblins frequenting particular spots, never wandering beyond certain narrow bounds. The counties of Durham and Northumberland are popularly believed to have abounded as much as any known region with these creatures of the imagination, which have not even yet all been forced to flee away by the spread of secular knowledge. The Brownian Dobby, the Brown Man of the Moors, Redcap, Dunny, Hobheadless, Silky, the Cold Dad of Hilton, the Pictree Brag, all are local sprites of more or less celebrity, haunting particular spots and varied in characteristics. The Headley Cow is not one of the least famous of the number. According to all accounts, the cow was a bogey, mischievous rather than malignant, which haunted the village of Headley near Epchester. Some uncertainty prevails as to the precise locality here indicated for there are at least four Headleys within a short distance of the old Roman station on the Derwent. Headley near Mickley in the parish of Wittenstall, Black Headley near Eddy's Bridge, both in Northumberland. Headley or Headley Hall on the skirts of Blackburn Fell, formerly a great waste, in the parish of Lamesley, and Headley Hope near Cornsay in the parish of Lanchester, the last two in the county of Durham. Whichever of these four neighbourhoods was haunted by the cow, it is perhaps impossible now to tell. Neither, in fact, does it matter very much, as the localities are only a few miles from each other, with only the River Derwent intervening. One thing all are agreed on, the cow did no one any serious injury, but merrily took delight in frightening people. To whomsoever he appeared, he usually ended his frolics with a hoarse laugh at their fear or astonishment. After he had played them some sorry trick, to an old woman, for instance, gathering sticks, like Goody Blake at the hedge side, if not actually out of the hedge, he would sometimes appear as a fad or truss of straw lying on the road. If, as was natural, the dame was tempted to take possession of this fad, her load in carrying it home would become so heavy that she would be obliged to lay it down. The straw would then appear as if quick. The truss would rise upright like the patriarch Joseph's sheaf, and away it would shuffle before her along the road, swinging first to one side, then to the other. Every now and then it would set up a laugh, or give a shout, in the manner of a rustic dancer, when he kicks his heels and snaps his fingers at the turn of a tune, and at last, with a sound of like rushing wind, it would wholly vanish from her sight. Two men belonged to Newlands on the left bank of the Derwent opposite Ebchester, a place now rendered famous in connection with the mysterious person who claimed to be Countess of Derwentwater, went out one night about the beginning of the present century to meet their sweethearts. On arriving at the appointed place, they saw, as they supposed, the two girls walking at short distance before them. The girls continued to walk onwards for two or three miles, and the young men to follow without being able to overtake them. They quickened their pace, but still the girls kept before them, and at length, when the pair found themselves up to their knees in the mire, the girls suddenly disappeared with a most unfeminine ha-ha-ha. 
the young men now perceived that they had been beguiled by the headly cow. After getting clear of the bog, they ran homeward as fast as their legs could carry them, while the boggle followed close on their heels, hooting and laughing. In crossing the Derwent between Ebchester and Hampstead Hall, the one who took the lead fell down in the water, and his companion, who was not far behind, tumbled over him. In their panic, each mistook the other for the cow, and loud were their cries of terror as they rolled over each other in the stream. They, however, managed to get out separately, and on reaching home, each told a painful tale of having been chased by the Headley cow. A farmer by the name of Forster, who lived near Headley, went out into the field very early one morning, as he intended driving into Newcastle. So as to be there as soon as the shops were opened, in the dim twilight he caught, as he believed, his own grey horse, and harnessed it with his own hands. But after yoking the beast to the cart, and getting up upon the shaft to drive away, the horse, which was not a horse at all but the cow, slipped away from the limmers, leaving the farmer dumbfounded, and setting up a great nicker as he flung up his heels, scowled away like mad out of the farmyard. The cow was a perfect plague to the servant girls at farmhouses all around the fell. Sometimes he would call them out of their beds by imitating their lovers at the window. At other times during their absence he would overturn the kale pot, open the milk house door and invite the cat to lap the cream, let down steaks in the stockings they had been knitting, or put their spinning wheel out of order. Many a time, taking the shape of a favourite cow, he would lead the milkmaid a long chase around the field before he would allow himself to be caught. He would at last upset the pail, slip clear of the tie, give a loud bellow, and bolt off tail on end, thus letting the girl know she had been sport of the cow. This trick of his was so common that he seems to have got his name from it. It is related that he very seldom visited the house of mourning, clear evidence that, demon though he was, he was not quite destitute of sympathetic feeling. But on the occasion of a birth he was rarely absent, either to the eye or to the ear. Indeed, his appearance at those times was so common as scarcely to cause alarm. The man who rode for the midwife was, however, often sadly teased by him. He would appear, for instance, to the horse in a lonely place, and make him stand stock still. Neither whip nor spur would then force the animal past, though the rider saw nothing. Horses see ghosts at times when men cannot, a fact known to the learned world from a very early date. It frequently happened that the messenger was allowed to make his way without let or hindrance to the house where the howdy lived, to get her safely mounted behind him on a well-girt pillion or sods, and return so far with her unmolested. But as they were crossing some stank or fording some stream, the cow would come up and begin to play his cantrips, causing the horse to kick and plunge in such way as to dismount his double load of messenger and midwife. Sometimes when the farmer's wife, impatient for the arrival of the howdy, was groaning and in great pain, the cow would come close to the door window and begin to mock her. The farmer would rush out with a stick to drive the vile creature away, when the weapon would be clicked out of his hand before he was aware, and would lustily apply to his own shoulders. At other times, after chasing the boggle around the farmyard, he would tumble over his own calves, and the cow would be off before he could regain his feet. One of the most ridiculous tales connected with this mischievous sprite is thus told by Stephen Oliver in his rambles in Northumberland. A farmer riding homeward late one night observed as he approached a lonely part of the road where the cow used to play many of his tricks, a person also on horseback a short distance from him. Wishing to have company in a part of the road where he did not like to be alone at night, he quickened the pace of his horse. The person whom he wished to overtake, hearing the tramp of the horse rapidly advancing, and fearing that he was being followed by someone with an evil intention, put spurs to his steed and set off at a gallop, an example which was immediately followed by the horseman behind. 
At his rate they continued whipping and spurring, as if they rode for life or death for nearly two miles. The man who was behind calling out with all his might, Stop! Stop! The person who fled, finding that his pursuer was gaining upon him, and then hearing a continued cry, the words of which he could not make out, began to think he was being pursued by something unearthly, as no one who had a design to rob him would be likely to make such a noise. Determined no longer to fly from his pursuer, he pulled up his horse, and adjured the supposed evil spirit, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, who art thou? Instead of an evil spirit, a terrified neighbour at once answered the question and repeated it. I's Jimmy Brown of the High Fields. Who's you? It is absent, needless to say, since the introduction of total abstinence societies into the regions watered by the Derwent, Team and Brownie, the appearance of the Headley Cow have been much fewer and further between, and seem to have lately altogether ceased. Now in 1894 the tale of the old lady gathering sticks and her meetings with the cow, in the shape of a straw bale, was recorded with a difference by Batten and Jacobs in more English fairy tales, this time with the old lady encountering a pot with a hole in it. Uh, this account can be read on Wikisource, I'll put a link on the main webpage. This version was also picked up and retold by folklorist Catherine Briggs in a 1979 book, Abbey Lubbers, Banshees and Boggarts, A Who's Who of Fairies. Today's listener story has been sent in by Jill. Sometime in the early 1970s, my dad John stopped his car at 6.15am in the morning at a field gate. It was still dark and he had just finished the night shift working at the chipboard factory in Hexham at 6am. He had decided to pick up a bale of straw from the farmer's field, so he turned the lights off on the car but kept the engine running so that he could easily find his way back to the car in the dark. He made his way through the gate and towards the bale when suddenly a white light appeared above him. His first thought was that it was a helicopter, but he suddenly realised that there was no noise coming from the light, so it couldn't have been a helicopter. Uncertain of what was going on, he looked around and noticed that the light was bright enough to illuminate the whole area for at least a quarter of a mile. Feeling worried and uneasy, he took the bale of straw and started moving back toward the car, and he noticed that the focus of the light seemed to follow him. Frightened now, he dropped the bale of the straw at the gate, climbed over quickly and turned to grab the bale. At that point the light shot away, was simply a curving pinprick of light travelling towards Newcastle within seconds. The next thing he remembers was being in the car driving home, though he had no recollection of getting into it or even getting off the gate. He also didn't realise that he was late until he got home. At the time he was meeting my mum to take her to work and upon arriving home found he was missing 20 minutes. A week later the Hexham Courant reported UFOs over Kimberley Clark's Prudder. The bale of straw lay in the field for months afterwards, with my dad being too fearful to attempt to take it again. He also reported that a mole had developed in the back of his neck soon after the incident, which definitely wasn't there before. That brings us to the end of episode 5. Many thanks for listening, and if you want to find out any more about Within the Boggart Wood, including social media and Patreon links, please check out the main website at theboggartwood.uk. Until next time, stay safe.